Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Grace, the Pearl of Great Price. I have been in the profession of sales most of my adult life. The one thing I've discovered in this profession is you better learn how to overcome objections or you'll need to find a new profession. People have ways of saying no sometimes more than you have reasons to tell them yes. But one of the objections that a salesperson encounters, and I don't care what it is you're selling, is it costs too much. I hear that over and over again. And my response to them when they say it costs too much, I say most things worth having today do. When I think about the pearl of great price, I am immediately confronted with the truth that someone had to pay a great price. You say, how do you know that? Because in the very title, it is the pearl of great price. What is the pearl, and what was the great price that was paid? I believe that pearl is grace, and that great price that was paid to give us this grace was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that this grace is given to us freely by God tells me that we were not the ones who paid the price. Okay, so we can just kind of forget about that for a moment. Oh, brother, I've labored and I've labored for the Lord. Yeah, I get that. But Jesus is the one who paid the price for this grace. Jesus paid the price and we receive all the benefits through grace, the pearl of great price. The 13th chapter of Matthew, I call that the parable chapter. That's because from start to finish, it's all parables. They're different lengths, and they have different storylines, but they have a common thread. They have a common denominator, and that common denominator, that common thread, is that Jesus is always pointing and telling us about the kingdom of heaven. He begins with the parable of the sower, and after he tells that parable, he says, I want to relate this to the kingdom of heaven. And then he moves into the parable of the weeds, and he says, the parable of the weeds is like the kingdom of heaven. And then he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and he explains that parable. He says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure found in a field. And then he ends the 13th chapter by saying the kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into the sea. But sandwiched between the treasure in the field and the net in the water is probably one of my favorite parables, the parable of the pearl of great price. In the parable of the pearl of great price, Jesus speaks of a merchant man who has diligently spent time. He's invested time in searching, the Bible says, for goodly pearls. The word goodly there literally means precious. I don't know if this man knows exactly what that looks like, but I believe he'll know it when he sees it. I was reminded of Simeon, who was acting as priest. When he beheld baby Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, he said these words. He said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now in those days, it was the custom by law that the firstborn male of every family be consecrated unto the Lord, and that was always done on the 40th day after birth. Can you imagine how many babies, how many little boys? You see, Simeon had a promise from God. He had a promise from the Holy Spirit. He said, you will not die before you see the salvation of the Lord, before you see this Messiah, you'll hold him in your hands. You will not see death. You will not see decay until that. So he had this promise, and it encouraged him. But day after day, baby after baby, year after year, he held those little boys. And so as I was meditating on that, I thought, how did Simeon know that when Joseph and Mary laid that little baby in his hand, how did he know this is the one? This is the one I've been waiting for. It's a good question, isn't it? He wasn't wearing no little bracelet that said, I'm the Messiah. 
And Mary and Joseph didn't say, this is what the angel told me. So how did he know? It's because the Bible says Simeon was moved by the Holy Spirit and his eyes were opened to see the manifestation of the precious pearl that he had spent a lifetime searching for and he declared, this is the one. How awesome that must have been that he had waited so long. Sometimes the longer we wait for things, the deeper it touches us when it manifests. I know we want everything to happen overnight, and God does make things happen overnight. God does do instant things. And I'm not a big advocate for waiting, but it's a part of life. It does happen. I get it. But he had waited on his promise. Wait on your promise. Whatever those promises are that God has made you, do not forget them. And hear the word of the Lord saying, you shall not see death until those promises are fulfilled. Amen. Friends, a man will never grasp the fullness of Jesus until he opens his eyes and his heart to see grace, the pearl of great price. There was a time in my Christian walk when I had an itch in my soul I couldn't scratch. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Like other people, I tried to scratch that itch from the outside in rather than the inside out. The Bible says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work it out from the inside. We don't work it in from the outside. Nonetheless, in my quest to soothe or to calm or to quiet my own itch, I discovered an amazing truth. Now listen, let me slow down here for a second because when the Holy Spirit was communicating this to me this week, it brought tears to my heart and brought tears to my eyes because in the quietness of my study, he began to say these words. Son, in the quest to quiet your own itch. And how do we do that? We do that through performance. We do that through working for daddy. And we think that will quiet things down. And it does for the moment. But those works eventually end. And you've got to lay down at night. And that itch reminds you, oh, there's just still something there. In my quest to soothe my own itch, here's the amazing truth I discovered. I had overlooked. I had underappreciated. I had underestimated and I had overcomplicated the magnitude of grace, the pearl of great price. And I think people still do that. They overcomplicate it. That's why Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for such is the kingdom of God. They don't come with complicated thoughts and complicated lives. They come full of faith. They come full of expectation. You see, I knew when I gave my heart to Jesus, I knew for certainty I was saved by grace. There was absolutely no question. I knew there was nothing I had done in my life leading up to that point that I was deserving of this grace that he poured out on me. I knew it was by grace that this pearl had saved me. It wasn't Jesus plus Mark. It was Christ alone. Come on, man. It is. It's Christ alone. And you know what? Somehow we get sophisticated sometimes and we think once we come to Christ that it is Christ plus. It is never Christ plus. It is Christ alone. After that experience of being born again, I was taught by my well-meaning teachers that if I wanted to receive more of this wonderful grace that I had just experienced, I needed to try harder. I needed to pray harder. I needed to ring bells harder, and I needed to repent harder. Am I the only one? I don't think I'm the only one. It doesn't always come across with those words, but it comes across with that concept. None of my teachers explained to me that out of his fullness, I had already received grace upon grace, grace for grace, grace in place of grace. I was searching for pearls in all the wrong places. Instead of wearing a necklace of pearls, I allowed religion to put a millstone around my neck of performance-based Christianity, and that millstone was trying to take me to the bottom of the sea. Jesus tells us this parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, just a little bitty thing tucked away there. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. 
And it says, who when he had found one, not two, one, not three, one, not four, one, not a string of pearls, one, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, friends, let me tell you something. You cannot buy God's grace. In other words, what it's saying here is this man literally took everything he had and he just exchanged it for that pearl of great price. It's called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus takes everything we've got and he says, I'll take all that. I'm going to give you all of me. Listen, I don't care if I've got something valuable. I'll give that to Jesus and I'll take everything he's got. I'm a richer man, right? If I was to boil that parable down to one sentence, just one sentence, one abbreviated sentence, I would say the kingdom of heaven is like one pearl of great price. Therefore, the questions become, what do the kingdom of heaven and the pearl represent? That is the treasure map that I want us to explore throughout the balance of this message. The word kingdom is created by merging two words together, king and domain. Do you hear that? King, domain. King, dumb. Together they form the word kingdom. Now, would you agree with me that you cannot have a kingdom without a king? Does that stand to reason? It is the king that brings about the kingdom. The kingdom is just a sphere. It's a territory. It's a space. And it belongs to the king. But you can't have a kingdom without a king any more than you can have a toothache without a tooth. The first time the phrase kingdom of heaven surfaces in the Bible, it comes from the lips of a man we call John the Baptist. He is the first person to use that phrase. And he was standing in the muddy Jordan, probably waist deep in his camel hair coat, probably eating grasshoppers in between the people that were walking out to be baptized, but shouting from the top of his lungs, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason we don't like the word repent is because we don't understand it or because we associate this word solely with sin. Repent simply means to change one's mind. Now, we don't have to roll around on the floor and go through a box of Kleenex when we repent. You know, we don't have to do that. It can come with joy on your face and joy in your heart. Repent just means to change your mind about something. Listen, I'm constantly changing my mind thanks to my wife. She'll help me change my mind. She'll say, well, that ain't quite right. And I'll stop and think about it. And I'll say, you know, you're exactly right, Valerie. And so I literally have to repent. I have to change my mind. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent has two syllables, re and pent. The prefix re means return or start at the beginning. And re is like tofu. Tofu just takes on the flavor of whatever you cook it with. My wife says it doesn't have any flavor all by itself, but I don't like the looks of it, so I don't like the way it wiggles in the pan, so I just say, I ain't messing with that tofu stuff, man. But she says, well, it doesn't really have any taste all by itself. I forget that. Maybe one of these days I will repent. <laughs> I will change my mind about tofu, but at this point in time, mm-mm but it takes on the flavor of whatever you cook it with. And the word re, the prefix re, takes on the flavor of whatever you add it to. But it literally means to return or start at the beginning. For example, if my computer is latched up and I reboot the computer, what have I done? I've told that computer to start over. I've told that computer, let's go back to the beginning. You see how that works? If I say rewind, if I want to rewind a cassette, what have I told it to do? Rewind back to the beginning. I want you to go back to the beginning. That's where the prefix re comes in. If I was to use regenerate, you know, we've been regenerated. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, God takes us back to the original condition and he regenerates us. Now, the word pent. The word pent literally means five. That's where we get five. If you've ever looked at the Pentagon, it's shaped in the form of a pentagon. Right, Papa? It's not shaped in the form of an octagon. It's called a pentagon for a reason. It's in the shape of a pentagon. A pentagon has five sides. So the word pent literally means five. If we say Pentateuch, Pentateuch refers to the five first books of the Bible. 
the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is called the Pentateuch. It's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Now, five is the number for grace. When we look at the Hebrew alphabet, we have Aleph, Bet, Gamel, Dalet, He. He is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the symbol for He is man with raised arms. That is Christ, and five always represents grace. On the surface, repent means to change one's mind. But if you look under the surface, in other words, you go to a deeper meaning, the word repent means to return to grace. So when John the Baptist was in that muddy Jordan River and he said, repent, he was saying, return to grace. All he had in front of him were people that knew the law. They grew up under a legalistic system. And he was saying, repent, change your mind, return to grace. I never really thought about it like that. Oh, Lord, that is so cool. You see why he told me not to rush that point? John the Baptist is saying, change your mind, return to grace. Now, Jesus comes along and he affirms John's wilderness cry as he himself unleashes that same powerhouse statement about the kingdom of heaven in his first words following his 40-day fast in the desert. Now, I have been on a couple of 40-day fasts throughout my Christian walk, so I'm speaking from experience, not textbook. I'm not talking about what somebody else told me. I've went through the 40-day fast. I can tell you from experience some things, okay? Spend a few days with a man or a woman after they have completed a 40-day fast, and within minutes, probably seconds, you will discover the residue of their encounter with the Holy Spirit in that 40-day fast. You see, the Bible says, for out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. And so all you have to do is just listen to what somebody is saying, speaking, whatever it may be, whether they've been fasting or not, and you'll know what they've been meditating upon. When I was led into my 40-day fast, the heartbeat of those fasts was compassion for lost people. And if you got around me, even to this day, you'll still see that is a passion of my heart, is to tell lost people about Jesus. And also to take people that know Jesus and tell them you can take the grave clothes off. You don't have to wear those grave clothes. Absolutely. So, does it stand to reason that if Jesus' first words, I'm talking about his first words that are recorded by Matthew when he came out of his 40-day fast, his first words were the same words that John the Baptist said from the Jordan River. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does it stand to reason then that Jesus was meditating at least some of that time in the desert about the kingdom of heaven. Does, does it stand to reason? As he communed with the Father, as he talked with his Father, as he poured out his soul, as he heard the Father's voice come in like a flood, does it stand to reason they were talking about this kingdom? Let's look at the scriptures that support this truth. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. I want to tell you something. That's because you got a great pearl. The people in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. What's that repent? Change your mind. Return to grace. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are Jesus' first words. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was saying several things. He was saying, first of all, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. The kingdom which the former prophets and the Old Testament saints of God were always reaching for into the future is standing right in front of you. I am no longer a shadow. I am the substance. I am the light that has dawned. I have pushed back the shadow of death so that you don't have to live in darkness. I am your kingdom 
of light. In John 8, 12, he said, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we find this wonderful truth. For he, that's Christ, rescued us from the domain. There's that word again, that kingdom. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us or translated us or transported us, however you want to say it. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he's put us inside his beloved son. His beloved son is the man of peace. He's the man of grace. He's the man of love. He's the man of light in whom we have redemption, he says, the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus used the word repent, let me tell you something, he was talking to everybody. See, we always think, man, he's just talking to those unbelievers, man. Y'all need to repent. No, he was talking to everybody. To the unbeliever, he was saying, change your mind. You must be born again. He told Nicodemus that in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So to the unbeliever, he said, you need to change your mind. You must be born again. To the believer, he was saying, I want you to return to grace. Moses is no longer your king. I am your king. (laughs) I am translating you out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of law into the kingdom of light and into the kingdom of grace. I am the king of kings. This is my domain. I am grace, the pearl of great price. When I came into the revelation of grace a few years ago, I felt like I had rediscovered Jesus. I'm just being honest with you. This is the same Jesus? I felt like I rediscovered Jesus. You see, over the years, I had gotten so caught up in working for Jesus and then listening to messages that reinforced that behavior, reinforced those habits, that I mutated from a human being into a human doing. Now, I'm not against doing things for Jesus. But I've come by today to remind us that our identity, if you will, does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. It does not consist in the abundance of the things we do. Our identity is in Christ alone. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus. He said to them in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, these words, he said, nevertheless, I have something against thee because you have, look at that word, left your first love. Left your first love. I've heard this scripture preached many ways from many pulpits, from many preachers, from many pastors, from many evangelists. But here's kind of the way I've heard it preached, that a believer, either he or she, has lost their first love. Not left. The scriptures say you've left your first love. It's important to understand that a believer's love is never lost, only left behind. If I leave my car keys inadvertently in my car and then I go in the house, a little bit later that day I might be going, where's my car keys? I've lost my car keys. And you look everywhere you know to look in the house, they're not there. What comes to your mind? I've lost my keys. (laughs) Your keys aren't lost. They're hanging in the ignition of your car. They were just left behind. They're not lost. What happens is this. A believer's first love for Christ starts out on the right foot, sitting at his feet, enjoying his voice, allowing him to pour in grace, allowing him to pour into our heart love. Then a brother or sister in Christ comes along and convinces that new creation, that tender little shoot, that they were placed upon the earth to make pearl necklaces for the king. So they spend a lifetime cracking open shells, looking for pearls to bring to Jesus. This is how people become tired. This is how people become wearied in well-doing that the Bible talks about. And eventually what they do is they leave their first love behind. But the revelation of grace, the revelation of his unconditional love, the revelation of grace, the pearl of great price, awakens and resurrects love for the Savior. You see, in the very next verse, verse 5, Jesus tells them how to return to their first love when he says that word again, repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying return to grace. Change your mind. 
You've never been lost. You've just been left behind somewhere out there. I was still with you. You didn't feel my presence, but I'm, I'm always with you. Return to grace. He said, I want you to return to your first works. What was it they did at first? They trusted in Christ and they abandoned the old covenant of law that was full of rules and regulations and performance and sacrifice. They beheld Christ. They beheld Jesus and him alone, the one full of grace, the pearl of great price. When we think of a pearl, we typically think in terms of jewelry. Necklaces, rings, bracelets, earrings, brooches, tiaras, crowns. <laughs> but the word pearl is also used as a metaphor to describe something that's rare and fine and valuable. If I were to say of my wife Valerie, she is a pearl of a wife. I don't think anybody in here would need an explanation of what I'm saying. What am I saying? I'm saying Valerie is rare. Valerie is fine. Valerie is valuable. The Bible speaks of more than 20 precious gemstones. You have things like the diamond and the emerald and the opal and the onyx and the ruby and the sapphire and the topaz. But among the list of these precious gemstones is the pearl. A pearl is not dug out of the earth like a diamond. A pearl is formed entirely within a living being. Didn't Jesus say that we are living stones built on top of him and that he is that chief cornerstone? See, it's not just in a ground somewhere. It forms in a living being just like us. We form glory upon glory, grace upon grace inside of a living being. Religion is not living. Religion is dead, man. We form inside Christ. Did you know that only one in 10,000 wild oysters, now when I say wild, I'm ruling out all the ones they raise on farms. I'm talking about the ones that are naturally out in the sea. Only one in 10,000 oysters will ever produce a pearl. But then out of those ones, that have pearls, only a fraction of them will have a pearl that's the right color, the right size, and the right shape for a jeweler to say, man, I'm interested in that. I'm really interested in that. This is how rare they are. This is how fine they are. That's why they're so valuable. Most people have been taught that a pearl begins with a grain of sand. Haven't you heard that before? Yeah, he must have got a grain of sand in him. This is generally not true. You see, if that were the case, then every mussel, every clam, every oyster, every mollusk that you brought up from the bottom of the sea would have a pearl in it because the ocean is full of sand. Pearls typically begin from a food particle. Listen to me carefully now. They typically begin from a food particle or a piece of shell from another oyster or a parasite that the mollusk cannot dispel, can't get rid of. The invasion and irritation from that foreign object causes the mollusk to coat the invader with a membrane-forming protein called nacre. If you've ever looked at an oyster shell, you see all those colors. That is nacre that is coated the inside of that shell. Okay? So at first, the clam or the oyster does everything it can to cough out the invader. But after many failed attempts, it does what it believes is the next best thing to do. It coats it with nacre, and it makes it a part of who it is. You know, like they say, if you can't beat them, join them. That's kind of what it does. Nacre is the same substance that the oyster coats the inside of its shell with. Nacre is strong, it's resilient, and it's iridescent. The oyster coats the foreign object with nacre, and as it builds one layer over another over the years, the pearl increases in size. It reminds me of what happens at salvation. Someone hears the gospel, and they place their trust in Christ. They are saved 
by grace through faith alone. And now they're a happy little clam, aren't they? Aren't you happy? You just got saved. Then a preacher or a teacher or a well-meaning friend comes along and helps them swallow a foreign object. Let's call it what it is. It's law. It is performance-based Christianity. And they help them in all the good intentions they have to swallow that foreign object. Now, because they're so new in Christ, they don't know anything. And they're so happy, they're the happy little clam. They're oblivious to the truth that the old covenant was made obsolete. They don't know that. In fact, most believers still don't know that. If you asked them, do you realize that the old covenant was made obsolete? They'd be like, what are you talking about? They could not explain what you're even talking about. So this new creation in Christ has swallowed this foreign object, its performance-based Christianity, oblivious to the fact that the old covenant was made obsolete, along with all of its demands, all of its restrictions, all of its conditions, there is no resistance on that new believer's part and no attempt to cough out that foreign invader. The new creation in Christ embraces that invader and coats it with layer upon layer upon layer of similar teaching until it is formed into a doctrinal stronghold. That is the way I thought the Holy Spirit said it to me. Are you with me so far? Do you understand where I'm coming from? Okay. This may not be one of those messages you jump up and down, but I'll tell you what it will do is it will reinforce what you've already got. Eventually the invader, or let's just call it religion if you will, forms into a pearl, listen to me carefully, of their own making. See, we're talking about the pearl, the pearl of great price. We're talking about grace. So you say, wait a minute, I'm a little confused here now, Mark. You're making a pearl sound both good and bad. It's like righteousness and self-righteousness. If you want your own righteousness, that is a bad thing, right? It's still called righteousness, but it's self-righteousness, and it's not a good thing. We want Jesus's righteousness. So this religion, if you will, forms into a pearl of their own making, and here's the weird thing is they don't want to let go of it. It's perceived as strong. It's perceived as resilient. It's perceived as iridescent. Look how pretty it is. It's perceived as valuable. It's perceived in so many fine ways. It's perceived as rare. What I hold is a rare teaching. It is then that Jesus' finished work of grace, the pearl of great price, gets supplanted by religion a pearl of their own making. This is why this message is so important. I am not backing down from this message. It is so important. When my wife and I came into the revelation of the finished work of Jesus, listen to me carefully, everything began to change. Not just a few things. Everything began to change. This included our thinking, this included our praying, and this included our preaching and teaching. We had to scrap everything else and say, this is just not right. We knew in our hearts it wasn't the right way to do it. And we said, Holy Spirit, lead us and teach us. The gospel of grace, hear me carefully, has cost us much. If you think you can preach the true gospel of grace and it not cost you something, you're mistaken. You are badly mistaken. Did you notice there's not a lot of mega grace church? They're all a bunch of little small churches for the most part. And that's why people are having such a hard time finding a finished work ministry, a grace ministry is because they're just little churches here and there because they can't get enough people to believe the truth. They want to hold on to the pearl of their own making. They, oh, man, please, Lord, help us on that. Many people have distanced themselves from us and have no interest in spiritual conversation. People that we would have talked to in the past and had wonderful spiritual conversation, now because we bring in that message of grace, you can just tell in the atmosphere, I don't want to open those windows. And we don't beat anybody over the head with it. But we do talk about the goodness of our Lord. We do talk about His grace. We do talk about His finished work. But I want you to know something. We are the freest we have ever been. Am I telling the truth, sweetheart? We are the freest we have ever been in our souls. Much care has to be used when extracting the pearl. The oyster has already attached the pearl to itself. It's not just rolling around in the bottom of the shell. You open that little mouth and dump it out like that. It's already coated it and made it part of itself. So much, much care. You've got to take a scalpel and you've got to carefully dissect it away. So it is with religion and performance-based Christianity. It takes a gentle approach. Please do not stand there and argue with somebody about grace. You're better off not to have that conversation. It takes a gentle drip drip, drip, drip. I'll tell you one thing, they're watching your life, number one. 
they're seeing that manifestation of the pearl show up in your life. They're seeing that iridescence of the pearl show up in your life when you're under especially difficult times, difficult situations. It takes a general approach to take away those religious pearls of one's own making. I think that's what Jesus was getting at in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, when he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. You see, the best time to pour grace into someone is at new birth, whether they are a baby physically or a baby in the Lord. That is the best time to do that. New wine is always best in new wineskins, right? You see, because if you take an old wineskin, which was really just a goat hide, and you've let it set for a while, now it's formed and it's hardened. If you're trying to put new wine, just picture that, that this is just the religious system over here. It's hard. It's inflexible. It won't move. Now, if you want to keep pouring Old Covenant in there, you want to keep pouring those old principles in there that have been made obsolete, it will take that and drink it right up and go, huh, we like this stuff. But when you take grace, the new wine, you begin to put that new wine into an old wine skin. I want to tell you, you better do it a drip at a time because the new wine is still fermenting. And as it ferments, it gives off gases. And as it gives off gases, it begins to expand. And Jesus said, if you do that, if you pour it in too fast, what's going to happen is you're going to ruin the wineskin, you're going to ruin that person, and you're going to ruin that opportunity. So I have learned to take a gentle approach. Let them watch your life. I don't need to sneak up on anybody and scare them with grace. Here, have some Grace. That's just weird, isn't it? I think that's what Jesus was really getting at. Why would he tell us about wine and wineskins? Because he's trying to convey a spiritual principle that if you take new wine, new revelation, grace, and you start pouring it into an old wineskin, you know what you're going to have? You're going to have an outburst. And we have seen that. And so the Holy Spirit is teaching us how to temper that and how to be gentle with that approach. Those that criticize the finished work of grace have not spent enough time in that domain or they could not say these words, grace is a license to sin. But that is one of the things you're going to hear. Hey, you better watch that doctrine of grace. It's a license to sin. I've never heard anybody, any grace minister say that. And we have never said that. But when somebody says that, what it tells me is they have not spent enough time over in the domain or in the kingdom of grace, or they couldn't say that. I can say with confidence that grace is the heart of Jesus, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I have spent time in all three domains. You say, wait a minute, I thought there was only two, darkness and light. There's actually three, really. You see, I have lived in Satan's kingdom, that's darkness. I have lived in Moses' kingdom, that's the believer under the law, and I live now in Jesus' kingdom, and that is a believer under the gospel of grace, the kingdom of grace. Many believers have been eating from old covenant particles all their lives. Some of grandpa and grandma's shell has broken off on them. They're a chip off the old clam. <laughs> the parasite of religion has attached itself to their hearts and into their souls like the barnacle on the bottom of a ship. Like an irritant to the oyster, the Mosaic law, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments now, like an irritant to the oyster, the Mosaic law is the very irritant that brought us to Christ. It was the irritant we couldn't shake. It was the irritant we couldn't dispel. It was the irritant that wouldn't sleep. It was the irritant we couldn't cough out. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, he said, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So it sounds like he is bragging, and he is. He said, man, I would have went through life, and I would have been lost had it not been for the law that showed up and told me what sin was. It defined it for me, and it showed me. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. I'm not against the law. I'm thankful for the law. The law brought me to Christ. It showed me my sin and my need for Jesus. That's what it did. In Romans chapter 7, verse 12, it says, So then the law is holy, yes, 
and the commandment is holy, still is, righteous and good. And then in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7, the Bible says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Okay, we've given the law its space. We've given it its time. We've given it its spotlight. But here's the deal. Once the law brings us to Christ, it has no further agenda. It's not looking to do anything else for you. Only the enemy and religion will try to convince a believer that they need to hold on to the old wineskin. They need to hold on to pearls, the pearls of their own making. Here's where we live at under the new covenant, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. You see that? Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law I want you to look at that next word, was. The Bible says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. If there were verses that I would encourage you to commit to memory, that would be them right there. Every time you'd look at those, you'd say, I'm a new creation in Christ. I am under the gospel of grace. The law was our schoolmaster. The schoolmaster of Paul's day was not a teacher, by the way. It was merely someone who took the children by the hand and led them to school. They were called schoolmasters. Similarly, the law is like that. It doesn't teach the sinner anything. The law is not a teacher. It merely exposes our sin and then takes the sinner by the hand and brings them to Christ. That is the purpose of the law. Due to the fact that many believers do not divide the old covenant from the new covenant, they continue to allow the schoolmaster of law to take them by the hand instead of the Holy Spirit to take them by the heart and bring them to Christ. We don't have to keep searching for our identity. Grace, the pearl of great price, reveals that to us. We don't have to keep searching for acceptance. Grace, the pearl of great price reveals that to us. We don't have to keep searching for forgiveness. Grace, the pearl of great price, reveals that to us. We don't have to keep searching for freedom. Grace, the pearl of great price, reveals that to us. In closing, let me share a Bible narrative with you that I believe overtly contrasts law, the pearl of its own making, against grace, the pearl of great price. Here it is, Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when it says she kissed them, it is the same kind of kissing that the prodigal son's father kissed his son with. It means to repeatedly kiss. It's not some little smoochy pie. It is adoration at its finest. Nothing is too extravagant for my Jesus, the man I'm about to put my faith in. I would give all my possessions. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I would give all my possessions to be able to watch that movie right now. What a priceless vignette that must have been. Here's a sinful woman that is not on Simon's guest list, yet she makes her way to Jesus at a black tie event. She is not wearing a black tie. She is wearing a black eye. She is trapped in the domain of darkness and has spent many years searching for a way out of her humiliating and condemning lifestyle. And then at last, at last, her blackened eyes have finally fallen on the feet of Jesus, the pearl of great price. The schoolmaster has done his job, and he has done it well. He has brought this sinful woman to Christ that she might be justified by faith. The Pharisees are silenced as her tears and her hair and her kisses 
and her perfume are lavished on Jesus, the pearl of great price. She spares no expense and makes no apology for the interruption. I was thinking last night, how did she get in there anyway? That's weird, isn't it? She wasn't invited and she would not have been welcomed. Only grace, only grace will take you and allow you in places that you could have never gotten into. Only grace can make the way because he wanted to say, I want a story that they can read about for the generations to come about the brokenness of this woman. But when she saw my feet and she brought her perfume in expectation of pouring it upon me. Can you see why the silence hit the room? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this at Simon, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both friends. That's what grace does. We all owe more than we can pay. But grace says, I'm going to forgive you both. I'm going to forgive you all. I want you to know something. If both of those thieves at the cross would have said, remember me, they would have both went into paradise that day. He would have said, both of you, you might owe 500 denarii, you might owe 50, and maybe that was the case. I don't know. Maybe the one guy's crime was so much more volatile. Maybe the one guy's crime was so much more heinous. I don't know. Maybe he just said, I just can't believe. I can't believe there would be that much grace available for me at this time in my life when I've done nothing. I've not even made my own pearl. I've got nothing. But the one got the revelation, and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom today. And he looked at that man and he said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He says, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, stop and think about that for a minute. It's quite hilarious that he turns to the woman, but he keeps talking to him. Usually when you're talking to somebody, you're looking at them. See, that's what grace does. Grace will keep its eyes on you. The Bible says he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? He said, I came into your house, Simon. But you did not give me water for my feet, which was the custom. It was customary when a man came into your house, you were to wash his feet. He said, you didn't wash my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I love that part about the hair. You see, the Bible says the glory of a woman was her hair in those days. Long hair. That was a woman's glory, the Bible says. And so you were very careful how you treated your hair. You were very distinguished with what you did with your hair. And the fact that she's wiping his feet now with her hair, her glory, she's essentially saying, my glory is not good enough. I want the glory that's on you to be on me, not my glory to be on you. It's a wonderful picture. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you it wasn't just one little smooch? It was a continual. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whosoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, watch this now, your sins are forgiven. She didn't pray a sinner's prayer. Look at her heart. Her heart has said, I'm changing my mind. This woman was a harlot. She said, I'm changing my mind. I'm afraid of the law. I'm afraid of the Pharisees. She changed her mind. I've got this valuable ointment, this valuable perfume. I want to give it to you. I'm changing my mind. I'm returning to grace. 
You see, grace is where it all started back in Genesis. It was always about grace. The Bible says about Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has always been the heart of God. You see in Genesis, grace, 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 grace. And then we step over to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, and it's in chapter 20, you see the law, the law, the law, the law, all the way through Malachi. And it actually goes over into uh, the New Testament too. We read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We think, oh, that's where the new dispensation starts. That's where grace starts. No, grace didn't start until Jesus was crucified in terms of that manifestation of the dispensation of grace. The covenant of grace, the new covenant is what I'm getting at. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room when he said those words. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What wonderful thing to say to somebody. Your faith has saved you. Not your works. Not all your tears, not the perfume, your faith. See, all those other things were just manifestations of all this faith being poured out and poured in. Do you see the contrast between Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman? The parasite of religion has attached itself like a barnacle to Simon's heart. Over the years, Simon the Pharisee has coated his pearl of religion with nacre, or we can say the law, and it has grown into a pearl of his own making. The unnamed sinful woman, though, we don't even know her name. The unnamed sinful woman, on the other hand, has traded away her sorrows. She has traded away her shame. She has traded away her sinfulness. What did she trade it for? I'll tell you what she traded it for. She traded it for grace. The pearl of great price. Daddy, I have preached myself very, very happy on the inside. I'm just so thankful. Your word is just so full, so full and teeming with life. Oh, Daddy, give the world eyes to see, the body of Christ eyes to see, eyes to see that it's by faith and it's by grace and that we don't have to make a pearl of our own making. We can just come to Jesus. We can come and sit at the feet of Jesus and we can kiss the feet of Jesus and we can pour our perfume on Jesus. The man of grace, he is absolutely the pearl of great price in Jesus' name. Amen.